ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Forgetting the lessons of history condemns us to repeating them. I, we know that fa- uh, truism very well. How might that apply to the position we're in right now, watching the Ukraine war unfold slowly, imagining what might happen next? Uh, I particularly mean after the shooting stops. Well, the eminent historian Margaret Macmillan, such a close student of the slide towards World War I 100 years ago, has been turning her attention to precisely this and she's distilled her forecasts into a thoughtful piece, How Wars Don't End, in the latest Foreign Affairs magazine. I welcome her back now. Hello there, Margaret. Hello. As usual, Margaret, you offer some great one-liners. When the guns finally fell silent in 1918, they did so in a very different Europe, you wrote. Plus, you quote the French leader in 1919, Georges Clemenceau, quotes, making peace is harder than waging war. Now, do you think we might discover that is very true, that prophecy? I think we will. Um, I think what we're already discovering is that once the war starts, you never know where it will go. You never quite know what it will do. Even those who think, like President Putin at the moment, think they're in control of things, aren't really. And how and when this war will end, I think we don't know. But I think what will be clear is there are going to be real problems once it has ended. And whatever the state of Russia, it will be a deeply unhappy and and no doubt bitter Russia as the war comes to an end. And Ukraine, of course, will be in very bad shape indeed. It's going to need an enormous amount of rebuilding. And how those two countries deal with it, and, and more importantly, I think, is how the international community helps them deal with it is going to be one of the major questions of the next decades. Um, in fact, you do say that uh, after World War One, there are all sorts of mistakes made at precisely this point, but that World War Two and the behaviour of the United States, especially with the Marshall Plan, that great sort of um, uh, effort to um, rebuild Europe, that that was an exemplary response to uh, to a complete victory. One of the problems when a war ends, especially if you put a lot of money into it, is that you and your taxpayers don't want to go on putting money into trying to rebuild the peace. And at the end of the First World War, I think the United States pulled back. It it didn't support the League of Nations, didn't join the League of Nations, even though it had been pushed by and promoted by President Woodrow Wilson of the US. And Britain and France didn't have the capacity or the will to really try and rebuild Europe. And so I think we learnt And leaders learned from the experiences of the First World War that after the Second World War, they probably needed to do more. But even then, I think the United States would not have done the Marshall Plan, which was very important in in kickstarting Europe, getting Europe's economy going again, Western Europe, that is, and bringing prosperity and, and bringing eventually social peace to Europe. It probably wouldn't have happened without the Cold War if the Americans and the American Congress hadn't been afraid of of growing Soviet influence in Europe, they probably wouldn't have done it. And my question, and I think we'll all be wondering, is what is the political will going to be when the war in Ukraine finally ends? Are the powers that have supported Ukraine in the war going to be prepared to put up an awful lot of money and resources to help build, rebuild Ukraine? And as important, are they going to be prepared to try and, and reach out to Russia and try and bring it back into the community of nations? Hmm. Which will depend on the quality of the leadership making all of these decisions, won't it? Which you, and you make quite a bit of this in your piece um, and, in, and in the interview that I heard you give subsequently, that the personality of leadership matters 
we've, we've tended to say we've got to get past this great man theory bit, but you say, no, but we mustn't forget that the personality of leaders really matters. Well, it can matter a lot because if you have someone who has a very powerful position, the president of the United States, for example, who has, particularly in foreign affairs, has, has tremendous um, leverage and tremendous power. If you have a very powerful personality person and personality in a dictatorship, then whoever that person is and whatever that person wants and whatever that person's feelings and, and assumptions and ideas are, are going to matter. Of course, it matters what other, you know, all the other factors matter. It matters how strong a particular country it is. It matters what, what, matters what sort of armed forces it has. But I don't think we can subtract the leaders. I mean, would we have had a war in Ukraine without President Putin? I, I really doubt it. So that people like, say, Andropov or um, even Gorbachev, you think that they would have possibly felt aggrieved about the end of the Soviet Union, but their risk assessment might have been different, meaning they cut across some of their emotions. Is that what you're hinting at? I think so. I think a different president in, in, in Russia would not have been so fixated on restoring, restoring the Tsarist empire. I mean, President Putin takes history very seriously. He takes his version of history very seriously. And I don't think we took that um, enough into account in the West. But his view is that Russia was a great power, should be a great power, was very badly treated. And he had a personal sense of humiliation because he was in Dresden as a young KGB officer when the war ended, when the Cold War ended, mm. and went through that whole experience of suddenly becoming someone very much less important in, a, in an empire that had disappeared. And so I think without him, with a different leader, you would certainly have had pressure from Russia on its neighbours. I mean, that, that, that would be understandable. But a different leader might have gone more cautiously, might have tried to keep Ukraine within the Russian sphere in different ways rather than simply invading it. And I think without President Putin, you know, we'll never know. Another leader might have done the same thing. But I think Putin's character here is very important, plus his unwillingness now to make any negotiations possible, at least so far. He's not shown any signs of wanting to negotiate. All he seems to want to do is just throw more military power after military power into Ukraine. And what do you make of the man called Vladimir Zelensky, whom not, you know, very few of us had heard about? He was a comic sort of thing. I mean, oh. he's been a big surprise, hasn't he? I think he's been a tremendous surprise, perhaps even to himself. I mean, when the war started, his approval rating was, I think, somewhere around 25%. He was not popular. There were all sorts of problems in Ukraine. His government was deeply unpopular. And he proved to be the man of the hour. I mean, you know, again, this is where the individual can sometimes matter. I think, it, you know, I'm thinking of Winston Churchill in the summer of 1940 when France was falling. A different prime minister in Britain might have tried to come to some sort of deal with the Axis powers. And I think... With Zelensky, the fact that he stayed in Kiev, you know, he wouldn't leave. He was, I think, physically very brave, but he also turned out to be an extraordinary speaker. I mean, he has got an amazing capacity to reach out not just to the Ukrainians, but to reach out to people who are supporters of Ukraine. Yeah, he's, he's certainly a strategic thinker that uh, is, is quite remarkable to watch. Look, what interested me too in your writing were your reflections on how things evolve during warfare. The views of the combatants themselves, uh, their objectives shift, you say, how civilians get drawn in, how people dream of victory, quotes. Now, what, what have been the key influences on your thinking there? Well, I think because I've spent a lot of my time um, looking at wars, and so I've looked at both the First and Second World Wars in, quite, in detail, 
And I think the longer the war goes on, a number of things happen. I mean, other countries can get drawn in. That's certainly what happened in both the world wars. You can get divisions within societies opening up and, and sometimes causing revolutions that happened to Russia in 1917, really as a result of the First World War. What you also get, I think, the longer wars drag on is, is shifts in the way weapons are used, shifts in tactics. And who thought that drones would be so important, but they've been absolutely key in this war. And the ways in which Ukraine has learned to fight, I think we can see they've adapted, they've, the, the tactics have adapted. I think the Russians have been much slower to adapt to what has really become a, an all out slogging war. What also happens, and, and this is what makes peace difficult sometimes to, 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 to establish, is that war aims expand. The more you suffer, the more you want someone to pay, and that's usually the enemy. And I've noticed that Ukraine's war aims have expanded from the opening of the war now to include not just Donetsk and Luhansk, which, which the Russians declared to be independent publics, but now Crimea. Yes. Can I just interrupt you? I had a, um, um, a distinguished uh, British military observer, Frank Ledwidge, on last week, and his view was that the Americans would uh, prevent them, if they got to the position, of going into Ukraine, that they would consider it was just too, it was too much of a lightning rod for the future with Russia. I wonder what yeah, you think, think about that. I think he's probably right. I think the Americans would, would not want Ukraine to go into Crimea because it would cause trouble. And and majority of the population is Russian. I mean, partly because Russia has encouraged and, and moved a lot of Russians in there and, and, and others have moved out. But nevertheless, yes, Crimea now has a thoroughly Russian population, pro-Russian population looking towards Russia. And I think it would cause future trouble. And, and Crimea itself might actually prove to be for Ukraine, if it were to take it over, a real problem because it will have a resentful and, and, and unhappy mm. population who don't want Ukraine to be there. But how much leverage the United States will have over Ukraine if and when Ukraine has, has boots on the ground, has forces there, again, we don't know. You also say we seem to be making many of the same false assumptions about this war as were made in 1914, you know, assuming it would be a short and decisive campaign. Uh, why do we continue to do this? Though I might add, I notice soldiers virtually never suggest anything like this. And General Mark Milley, the head of the US, he's the Supreme Commander. He's, he's <laughs> warning that he thinks this counteroffensive will be slow and, you know, it'll go much slower than people imagine. I think, yes, I, th I think the military know what wars cost, but it's sometimes very difficult for them to say to their political superiors, look, um, you know, here we are, you've spent a lot of money on us, we have all this equipment, but we can't actually promise you anything very much. And I think in 1914, there'd been a tremendous amount of money spent on, on the European military, there'd been an arms race and, and all countries, major powers were spending a lot of money. And the German army knew that it would probably have to fight a two-front war, one against Russia, the other against France, because those two were allies. And could the German high command go to the German government and say, sorry, you have spent a lot of money on us, but, you know, we can't actually guarantee you anything much. And I think psychologically and professionally, it was very difficult for them to do. And so they came, you know, they kept on saying, oh, yes, no, no, we can win. We've got this offensive war plan. It's brilliant. We're going to wrap up the French and then we'll deal with the Russians. Um, some of them knew in their heart of hearts that it wasn't going to be so likely, and some of them were, in fact, very pessimistic, but hard for them to say so to the government. 
One very interesting similarity you point out between the current conflict in World War I and II are the apparently senseless battles for towns and even villages of, you know, tiny strategic significance. And you think about the thousands, tens of thousands killed at Bakhmut, for instance, which are fought over on the grounds of symbolic importance. When you look back at the historic conflicts, have any of these battles had much bearing on the war overall? Well, they have. And I think part of what a war is about, particularly when it involves a nation as a whole, and the, the bigger the war, the more people are involved, is that it's terribly important to keep up the morale and the will of those who are fighting to go on, and as important to break the morale and will of the enemy. And so these battles, which often start out as, as battles merely for tactical or strategic advantage, can turn into something that becomes a much more sort of existential struggle. It's the French nation against the German nation in the case of Verdun in the First World War. And to uh, pull out, to accept defeat there is in a way to have the whole nation defeated. And I think that's a bit what happened at Bakhmut. For the Ukrainians, it became a symbol of their determination to hang on at all costs to their territory. And for the Russians, it became a symbol of their determination to bring Ukraine to heel and defeat it. And so war does have this you know, it's not just about material things. It's about will. It's about morale. It's about the determination of each side to win. Mm. So final question. I mean, I suppose what is the biggest risk that you would highlight to, to people who'd be trying to bring this war to some sort of conclusion? I mean, the Russians have already lost more troops than they've lost uh, completely in Afghanistan, for instance, in all those years. So, yeah, how... What's the best way of thinking through getting towards um, stopping the guns? I think it's got to depend on those who are actually fighting. And I think what will happen in the next few months on the ground is going to be important. But if, if the international community, community could get itself together, if you could get China, India, the United States, the European Union, uh, plus other members of the international community to somehow come together and say to both sides, you know, here's a plan for you. We really are going to put pressure on you until you sit down and talk. But that doesn't seem to be happening at the moment either. I mean, un unfortunately, at the moment, we seem to be in a situation where the will to end the wars is simply not there or the means to end it aren't there. And I suspect, you know, that the Russians are hanging on, waiting to see what will happen in the American presidential elections, which are coming up. Mm. All right, Margaret, um, thank you very much indeed for that overview. A pleasure to talk to you as always, Geraldine. Margaret Macmillan, Professor Emeritus of International History at the University of Oxford. The title of her article in Foreign Affairs magazine is How Wars Don't End, and I highly recommend it or the podcast, which you'll get a lot from. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.